Welcome to the Timeout Bulls podcast driven by Lexus. You can visit a Chicago area Northwest Indiana Lexus dealer today to test drive the outspoken 2017 Lexus IS. My guest this week is Quinn Buckner, and Quinn Buckner has really developed not only into a great commentator on the Pacers TV network, and he's been in that chair for many, many years, but did you know Quinn Buckner was All-State, All-High School here in Illinois? He was an All-American in Indiana, last unbeaten team in college basketball with the 76 Hoosiers. He was an NBA head coach, and now he's on the board of trustees of his alma mater at Indiana. So Quinn Buckner has a lot of great stories. And one of the things he really wants to instill, when I asked him to come on, he said, Chuck, you know, I'd love to. And this is more than basketball. So I hope you give it a listen. And in fact, after you listen, I really encourage you to share his story with another person who really can buy into what Quinn Buckner is about, not only as a basketball analyst, but first and foremost, as just a solid, solid guy. So here he is, Quinn Buckner on Time Out Bulls. So Quinn, I want to go back to uh, Thorn Ridge High School. And uh, by all accounts, if you talk to any historians that follow the history of Illinois high school basketball, they will say it is the greatest, if not the greatest team ever assembled. Obviously, you may be a little bit biased because you were on that ball club and you were the star of that team in the mid-70s. But take us back to that club and what made it so special. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm not biased because I'm subjective in it. I, it that's, that's an observation by other people, which says something about the team. What I know about them, uh, we were just, listen, Chuck, we were a bunch of kids just playing. We were playing, um, and we happened to, you know, in retrospect, this part is clearly subjective, but I think the reality is we were we were talented. I mean, Boyd Bats was as good as any player that I played with in a long, long time. you got to remember, Boyd in in the championship game in, in, uh, in our senior year had like 37 points, 15 rebounds, and like five blocks. Greg Rolls was a great athlete who really uh, could shoot the ball. Uh, we had extraordinary, we had great quickness. Mike Bonzik ran the show. We followed Bonds with his crazy self. So he ran the show. Ernie Dunn is, he was and is an extraordinarily bright guy. And when you play, and this is what I found going on uh, subsequent to that, when you play with really smart people who are gifted and committed to the same goal, it's hard not to have something successful. Now, that, that's the other to say. I just know that this group was smart, tough, played hard, and played together. And Coach Ferguson did a terrific job in managing our personalities um, and allowing us to just be and play and take advantage of our skills. And, and I'm, I'm very proud to have been part of that because that was the first championship that I'd ever been a part of. All right, let's talk about that uh, for a moment regarding your coach. Because everyone, obviously, uh, that has followed your career and a tremendous career, um, you and Bob Knight are you know, attached at the hip, so to speak, and uh, joined. And, and I'm just thinking, your high school coach, what influence did he have and how did he reach you? Well, Coach Ferguson was really good in understanding of what he had. Just to give a little context to you, we got bust to Thorn Ridge. We were supposed to go to another school, but Coach Ferguson understood the sensitivities in that. And that's the only reason that I think it's important to put that context on it. So he 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 put me on sophomore as a freshman and took a lot of grief for it. So he knew that there were going to be some things we had to deal with. I 
I am the proud, proud son of William and Jessica Buckner. William been gone 30 years. My mother, God bless her, is 93 and still living. But they had never taught me about racial kind of things in, in a negative sense. So I was balanced, very balanced on that. Uh, we had some kids that weren't. And because of that, Coach Ferguson allowed the personality that I was able to bring to manage that circumstance. You know, we, we had some kids who on one occasion left school because they didn't feel like there was some racial injustice. But, but Coach Ferguson knew that. So in a, when I, what I'm trying to say is he allowed the personality that William and Jessica Buckner had put in me to be, if you will, the leader of the guys. And the guys grew up with me, so they knew that I wasn't going to get in trouble because Another part of the context is my mother had been, my dad was a no-nonsense person, very quiet, but no-nonsense. My mother was my teacher in elementary school, so I was always having to be on point. And they knew that I wasn't going to lead them anywhere that was going to be troublesome. And Coach Ferguson trusted that leadership from my parents to and through me. And I think that's where he really did a, a fantastic job in letting kids just be kids, but trusting that my parents and their upbringing was going to allow as a rule, most of us to do the right thing without, you know, getting carried away and those kind of things. So I think that's where he was exceptional, just accepting us where we were and then, you know, helping us understand how we could be better as a team. So, Quinn, give me an idea that late 60s, early 70s, the demographics of Thornridge High School as far as Caucasian, African-American, other minorities. Well, I don't really Honestly, Chuck, I don't know what the number was, but we were the second class that got bussed. I, um, yeah, we were second class that got bus, and we ended up in a school of 4,000 people. I doubt that we had, if we had 400 at that time, that might be, that's an overstatement. So it was, it was, it was you know what, it was what it was, but it never bothered me. Because, again, my parents never, I, we never dealt with that in a negative sense. It was always people and people, respect is the issue. So it was not anything like that. So, it, you know, occasionally we would get, you know, some people that do some things that are, you know, ignorant. And I just say they're ignorant because they didn't know. But as a rule, it wasn't anything bad. I think the real positive out of this, and I, I'd like to emphasize that, is I found out what sports could do in that vein. When you're in those kinds of environments and sports and success can do with people. Uh, when the team was going to the state tournament, everybody pulled together regardless of where you, where you came from and that's what that's the lesson that i i am i embraced uh, i was happy for it i think my teammates embraced and, and we live by that you know you have go play have success and you'll and everything else works out quinn buckter is our guest today and our weekly podcast time out bulls on bulls.com our social networking sites along with apple itunes so Glad to have you with us today. Uh, Quinn, uh, we're going to talk about his days at Indiana University, of course, the NBA, and also on the board of trustees now at his alma mater. But Quinn, the, the you went to what, back-to-back state championships? Is that right? You won back-to-back titles? Uh, yes, I mean, we won back-to-back tri- uh, titles. And the irony of that is we lost one game when I between my my last two years in high school. We won, lost one game in my last two years in college. How that happens, I'll, I do not know. So you lost one game, and how do you remember that game? Sure, we played Miles Meridian, all <laughs> in the Carbondale tournament, and lost to them because we got carried away. Quite frankly, we were just we were arrogant, and we got beaten because we got carried away. Yeah, I remember it all these years later. 
And it, because, you know, Bill Walton always tells me regarding his career, he always remembers the game at Notre Dame where UCLA lost, and he remembers the game in the NCAA tournament where they fell to North Carolina State after beating them in St. Louis in the regular season. Well, I, I'm much more, you know, I, I don't ever know the scores of games. The only reason I have any idea of, of somebody's alma mater getting beat in, in college is because it keeps getting brought up to me. But the reality is I only know if we won a loss. That's that's all I, I, I paid attention to. I didn't care what it was by or anything like that. But that game in Mount Meridian was one of the, you know, you're learning as a young person about competition. We had such a great season up to that point. Uh, and went down to Carbondale. And I, there's just no doubt in my mind. We just thought we'd waltz through that like we were waltzing through the rest of the uh, the season. And they caught us. But I also think it was the impetus for us to have the success we had probably going forward. Because we had the, the starters, with the exception of Ernie Dunn, were the same uh, in my junior years. They were my senior year. So we, we learned a lesson that we carried forward for, you know, the, the rest of the the, the, uh, the rest of that junior year and then into the senior year with the success we had going undefeated that year. Quinn, how often do you get back to Thornridge and have you stayed in touch with your former teammates? I mean, it's been over 40 years. Yeah, well, I see, I talked to Coach Ferguson actually this summer and my mother still lives in the same house I grew up in. And so I was back home actually about this September. So I get home a couple of times a year, primarily to see my mother. I drive by the high school, but I'm not one I'm not trying to go in and impose any kind of memory on anybody at this point. I, 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 I've never been that way, and it, it's, that's just not my style. So I, I see the school, I go by there. The irony of that was until three years ago, my, longer than that, three or four years ago, my sister was the superintendent of the school district there, so she used to keep me in touch, and she's now back engaged as a consultant to District 205. So I'm aware of what goes on there, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not involved at all. All right, so Quinn, if memory serves me correct, and please uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you were a great two-sport star. In fact, football and basketball. So when you're going through your journey at Thornridge and the school, obviously getting a lot of publicity because of your success, number one, were you heavily recruited, and was it a done deal that you were headed to Indiana? It was not a done deal. I was heavily recruited. At that time, you could take as many trips as you wanted to take. Uh, my father, having been an athlete uh, as well at that time, an athletic director at another elementary school, and I had a conversation, and I told him that I was interested in taking maybe five, four or five visits. Uh, and I, I looked at one of them being Michigan, quite frankly, because Michigan's football and basketball were, were superior. Um, I, I, went, I looked at Illinois. Uh, I went to Kansas. I went to Cincinnati because if you remember Boyd Bats, for those who are listening, Boyd Bats, is is uh, is a brother of Lloyd Bat mm-hmm. L L Bat and Lloyd was a terrific player and Lloyd was the one that used to take me around and help me learn how to play basketball. Boyd is is the same age as myself, so Boyd went to Thornridge while Lloyd went to Thornton. So that's kind of how I got myself going. And then the decision to go to school was a fairly easy one. My dad went to Indiana University and and uh, went to school there and played football there. And I have a sister. But when I told you that's the superintendent, it's four years older than myself. So my dad would take us down to see my sister periodically. And what I didn't know at the time is I was being recruited by my father to go to Indiana University because the other school I went to look at and wanted to go to was UCLA. But my father felt very strongly about me being that far away from school. He also had a difficult time 
being from his generation, when uh, and, and understanding some of that, some of the things was uh, when I when the visit to UCLA was one thing. When Coach Wooden um, was going to do a home visit, he didn't go to people's homes, so we had to go out to O'Hara Airport to meet him. And my dad wasn't overt about it, but he, he was very much put off by that. Now, as much as anything, going to UCLA, which had the best basketball, was something I wanted to do. But my dad's major interest was if something went wrong, he didn't know anybody out there that he felt comfortable could help me. He, he had played with the football coach at Indiana University who was an assistant coach, the late Howard Brown, and he knew if I got, you know, because as college kids you get in trouble for doing something stupid, that I had somebody to turn to. So that's kind of how the whole recruiting thing uh, went. And, and Indiana was one of those deals. And, and for anybody that has a dad like this, they can appreciate it. My dad walked in and said, got, had the letter in his intent. It was like the last two days of that signing. He said, sign this boy, you're going to Indiana. So I got it, signed it, and gave it back to him. That's how I got to Indiana. Mm, that's an amazing story. Thanks for sharing that with us. <laughs> so you go to Indiana University, and I think Bob Knight's probably, what, Quinn, in his second or third year as the head coach there? He was going into his second year. Now, Chuck, I didn't know how Coach Knight coached. I had no idea. I'd really not watch Indiana play basketball. I'd watch Michigan play a little bit because Cassie, you know, I knew about Cassie at Michigan. And that team, so I'd watch Cassie play a little bit. I'd watch Illinois play because, obviously, having lived in Illinois, I didn't know anything about Indiana basketball at all. I really didn't know how Coach Knight coached until I got there. So it was, it, it was eye-opening in the, in the delivery of the message but not in the, the matter-of-fact of it. Because my dad was a matter-of-fact person, but he was a quiet. If he said it once, it had to be done, and there was no backtalk. And I think that really helped me be able to accept a lot of what Coach Knight's delivery was about. And my dad helped me understand. He said, son, because I, I did have a, a tough time with Coach Knight at one point. He said, listen, take what he says, and if it's the right thing and it's, uh, it's the right thing, do it. If, if, don't take the tone at all. Everybody delivers a message differently. Don't get caught in the tone. Take the message and do what the message says. And that was, I thought, one of the great messages I've ever gotten from anybody. People communicate differently. But was there a lot of your father and Bob Knight? Um, only in the, 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 the directness. Um, yeah, the directness and the, was there. If my dad was mad, he would be a little bit like Coach Knight, but he couldn't hold it that long. Coach Knight could could hold that, that intensity for a long time. My dad didn't hold it that long. He'd get it and there'd be an outburst and you have to do whatever you need to be do. do and in, in 24 hours or less, it's gone. I mean, that's, my dad was always about moving on. All right, let's, let's, what do we got to do now? Next step kind of thing. Coach Knight um, has a lot of that in him, but he, he had a tendency to carry it for more than 24 hours, depending on when the next game was to figure out when to back off of you. So, yeah, there was, there was a lot of both. But the, I, the funny part to me was my dad and Coach Knight did not get along. As you might imagine, to watch somebody uh, demand of your kid the way Coach Knight did, my dad didn't like it. And my mother had to help my dad understand. And she said, my mother called my dad, uh, my late father, Buck. She said, Buck, that boy can't serve two masters. You're going to have to get out of this. And, and that's when my dad kind of pulled out. And I, that was a big part of me being able to accept everything Coach Knight said. Because I'm not one to go home and call Dad. I, I rarely called home to talk to Dad. I didn't talk to my mother much about it, but they knew it was, was starting to affect me a little bit. But my mother had it was right on point. I, was, I couldn't serve two masters. If I, you tell me what to do, I'll do it. 
and and so that's that's really uh, the relationship with my dad and Coach Knight and how it impacted me. So at, at no time did your mom or dad pick up the phone your freshman year and place a call to Bob Knight and say, listen, Coach, I appreciate what you're doing, but we need to talk here. Well, my dad probably, my, I think my dad did. And I think that was one of the things that my mother tried to, had to convince my dad to get out of it. Because I don't remember sometime later when my Coach Knight said, you know, your father called me and kind of gave me some brief synopsis of the conversation. And because and, my dad had been coaching, you know, kids basically in elementary school and had been coached on the college, major college level. So he had never really seen this kind of coaching um, before and, and, and the way Coach Knight did it. So he had his perspective. And uh, Coach Knight had his, and, and eventually, as I said, that was at the time. I'm sure my mother told my dad, "You you can't do that to this, to to this boy. He can't serve you and, and serve Coach Knight at the same time. You got to get out of his way." So, so, so Quinn, what my mother was saying, basically, Quinn's got to grow up, get out of his way. So, <laughs> and my mother is God bless her. My mother's only five three, but my mother is one of those people who. Um, really can be diplomatic but is very very strong underneath and and that's really I'm, I'm i'm more like my mother than my father i have some of the directness of my father but i'm more like my mother than my father yeah well a lot of kids though quinn uh wouldn't be able to handle that i mean here you are a freshman you're 18 years young you're coming off a brilliant high school career and you're you're dealing with a very strong dominant alpha personality in bob knight um, I, I mean, would you, would you say that you took it to heart? Would you go into your dorm room? Would you cry? Would you just say, I want out? Uh, I mean, how did you handle this all of a sudden, this transition? I didn't, it, it didn't bother me nearly that much. I tell you, when it, the only time it bothered me was when I was a uh, senior because I started, you know, I, I, listen, I've been very blessed athletically. I started from the first game that I got on campus, which is, crazy both in football and basketball but in terms of basketball I, I just played and the only time that that really bothered me to the point of making me short of tears was I was a senior having started every game since I stepped on campus and in, in the second half of the season he benched me because he said I wasn't playing well and I really struggled with that probably because I had some sense of what the possibilities were down the road but I just thought that I built up you know in retrospect enough equity to kind of work through that but it was one of those things that turned out to be one of the best things uh, that happened to me, surely, at that point and, and going forward uh, as well. Basically, I wasn't playing well, and he didn't think I was putting all of my energy and concentration in the plan. He wanted to get my attention. He knew we were playing two teams we could, that we could beat. He didn't say that, but he knew that. So it was a little bit disconcerting at that point. But after the fact, it, it, the way it turned out, it helped me be much more productive and concentrate to do the kind of things I, I wanted to do. What he, what Coach Knight is really good at, and what any really good coaches do is their their strongest attribute. If they're really good, they figure out who the individual is and what do you need in order to get the most out of them. How do you need to move them? One, you could go at me um, verbally forever and a day, and I'm subject to. I'm going to listen to you, and I'm going to do what you ask me to do. But it's also part of me that kind of turns it off. And tends to do just intended to do a little bit more of my own thing. At the more you got on me, so you kind of knew when to get off me when I started doing my own thing because you stayed on me. So he figured that out. So my point about Coach Knight is he knew when to kick you, but he knew when to pat you. 
And that's those are the kinds of things that I learned from him. Were there more kicks than pats? No, not not at all. Because he because I'd gotten to the point, Chuck, that he started. He would tell me he'd do it with Scott too. He he would come and I won't mention the other player's name. He said, "I'm going to be on your rear end so hard today, but it's got nothing to do with you." And he had this other person that he wanted to get at their attention, but he wanted to do it by talking through, talking at me through the other person because yes. the other person didn't have the same strength that I had to take that kind of stuff. So, it, you know, it was all positive. I think the thing, Chuck, that, that he's, he said often it was, was, as you said at the beginning of the question, was the sacrifice that was made. And I, I didn't think about it that, that way, but it was a sacrifice that was made because I'd come out highly celebrated out of a great, with a great team and all of those things from Illinois. And I was willing to sacrifice, particularly the scoring aspect, in order to be so, part of something bigger than me. That's one of the things that he has cited often that he thought was, was unique for a kid, again, 18 years young, 19 years young. But to me, all I wanted to do, you tell me what the mission is. I want to be a part of it. I'll figure out how to be able to make the contribution. If you tell me you need somebody else to score because that's what they do better, I'm all for that. As long as we win, I don't really care who gets the credit. All I want to do is win. We'll be back to our guest in a moment. Let's take a quick break to thank our friends at Lexus and tell you about the new 2017 Lexus IS. Now, much like your favorite Bulls players, the new 2017 Lexus IS has a powerful stance, a strong profile, and an undeniable presence. Visit your Chicago area and Northwest Indiana Lexus dealer to test drive an outspoken IS today. It proves that some of the most powerful statements don't need words at all. Now, let's get back to Time Out Bulls, driven by Lexus. You know, Quinn, uh, before we discuss the championship season uh, and a near miss for a championship in the NCAA, and then we'll move on to your NBA career, uh, do you stay in touch with Coach Knight? How's he doing? I know you, you don't want to speak for him, but is he in a good place in his life? I think he's getting there. I really do. I think he's getting there. Um, you know, he's mid seventies. I think that you know the obvious struggles as you start as we all start to move along this life cycle. But I think as a rule, he's doing better. He lives. He doesn't live in Texas. He lives up. Uh, and I think. In, I think he lives in Montana. As a matter of fact, I think. Uh, not I think a bunch of us are supposed to get together with him this coming Friday. So looking forward to him coming back and guys just being there because he's always curious about. You know, you, what are you doing? Well, you know, and he'll remember kids' names and all of that. Just, just bring him up to speed for what what's been going on in your life. So I'm looking forward to that this week. You know, the the career you had at Indiana the last two years. Um, Scott May, did he break his hand? Was that it, um, Quinn? Where he, he got his arm broken at a game in Purdue when we were juniors, and I want to say it was probably about mm, three three and a half weeks before the tournament. And and that and really set a, you back, right? Because you well, lost course, to Kentucky. Was, well, it set us back because he was our, primarily he was our best scorer. We had other people on the team. Like Steve Green was a great shooter, uh, really could shoot the ball. Scott could really get open. And and, and I say this today, I, and I played with a lot of really good shooters. Scott made 17 feet and in. I put up against anybody I played with. Larry Bird, Brian Winters, Junior Bridgman. All of these were terrific shooters. I put Scott for a wide open shot at the same range. He's going to make that more as, as much, if not more often, than any of those guys. So, but 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 Quinn here in Chicago, we saw Scott. He was the number one pick, as you know, and it just didn't happen with the Bulls. 
Why, why couldn't he take No, it, didn't. it wasn't going to happen with the Bulls. Chuck, sorry for interruption. The reason it doesn't happen for the Bulls is, one, we all have responsibility. Scott's responsibility was to get open and get a shot. In the pros, they're not going to get you open. And if you recall, the Bulls were, if you're getting the number one pick, you're probably a number two pick, whatever, in the top three picks, you're not very good. Which means at that point, you don't have everybody bought into what it is you're trying to do. So they weren't going to get Scott open. If Scott got open, he made shots. He came to the Bucks where I got drafted to and played, and I want to say it was after like four or five years, and, and it was, oh, I tell you, it was up until, uh, it, so we were in the league about five years. I played with him, and I knew where he needed the ball, and he, he, he did just about what he did in college when he was on the floor because Scott could not get his own shot. But if you set screens for him and got him open at about 17, 18 feet, he could make shots. The Bulls were not prepared to do that. You had a lot of guys trying to, you know, it's, and in all fairness to the guys that he's playing with, they're trying to establish their career. And sometimes, not sometimes, in, in, in a professional environment, they're not nearly as concerned about getting somebody else going. They're interested in trying to do what they do offensively so they can stay in the league. So it was a, a bit of a survival mode there uh, that Scott was, was brought into. And guys didn't help him get open. And Scott was not a guy that's going to beat you off the dribble to get open. But he could make shots if he got open. The, the 75-76 national championship team, it remains as the only unbeaten team in NCAA basketball to go through, or the last one at least, to go through. Um, and, I mean, a lot of teams have knocked down the door. They haven't been able to bust it in. Again, Indiana, the last unbeaten team that we've seen in NCAA basketball. And this was 1976, folks. It's been over 40 years. Think about that. So, so Scott, what made that team special? And when did you sense that you could run the table? First night, I said it from the beginning. I, didn't, I don't remember it nearly as well. I, I vaguely remember. Ken Benson has, has said often, and Coach Knight told us in our first meeting, that if you do what I tell I recall this kind of message. If you do the things that you've been doing and continue to get better, I don't see any team able to beat you. Now, that was as close as he would come to say going undefeated. And so um, given what had happened to us when Scott and me got hurt in 75 and we were unable to fulfill that championship dream in 75, you got to remember now, you've got four seniors that are starting. And at that point, we all know the, 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 the urgency and finality of where we are in this thing. So it, it brings an extra sense of focus, urgency, and, and just short of des- controlled desperation if you can have that. Um, and so when we started the season, we were very intent on trying to make sure we won not, not the game, but possessions. And I mean successive possessions. And you, that's what it was broken down to. Uh, for us, we got to win the possession. Whichever one it was, offensive, defense, we got to be ready to figure out a way to get that done. And with that kind of focus, it keeps you from getting to the outcome before you go through the process. And, and I didn't think about it while we were doing it, but in retrospect, that's what he was trying to do, just make us not get too far ahead. And that's one of the reasons, that's one of the strong reasons I think we had success. The, the other, quite frankly, we were prepared. I, I never went in a game, um, with Coach Ferguson or Coach Knight, that I ever felt like we weren't prepared for to answer anything you were trying to do. And where Coach Knight, and I think what's relevant to today, and, and, and the Patriots and Coach Belichick, he always took away the one thing that you could do, made sure he took that away and forced you to find other ways to try to beat 
Indiana. And I think that's that's one of the things that he did well. He he was very good at diagnosing that, knowing what the option was, and and being prepared to take away for sure the first one, probably the second one, and making sure that people that shot the ball or had the ball in their hands didn't do whatever needed to be done because that was not their skill set. So, Quinn, you win the NCAA championship, and then a couple months later, the NBA draft. Now, remember, folks, this is 1976. Today, we have the glitz and the glamour and all the pregame shows leading up to the draft. You were selected seventh overall by the Milwaukee Bucks. Take us back on draft day. What were you doing? Where were you? <laughs> First of all, I had gone to practice. Uh, I had come back, I think, for two days, two or three days from trying out for the Olympic team. So that's where I originally was, was, was doing that. I, I come back from trying out for the Olympic team. Literally, my father and I are sitting in the kitchen of the house where my mother lives now. And, you know, it's a really small house, as you might imagine, out in the south suburbs of Chicago. And Wayne Embry called me and said, we're, we're picking you. Now, prior to that, we're taking you. Now, Wayne Embry knew Coach Knight and had come to some practices, but I had no idea. And I wasn't, I really wasn't tuned into the NBA the way a lot of people are today. That's just the way it was. So I didn't think about it um, at all. I actually had heard that I was actually probably going to Buffalo uh, and they, at the last minute, with the late Jack Ramsey, decided to take Adrian Dantley, who was a member of our Olympic team, instead of taking me. And so that was fine, but because Milwaukee was only, it's only 90 minutes from where I grew up, so it was fine. But literally, I was sitting in the kitchen, of, uh, and my father and I were sitting and talking about the Olympic experience when uh, Wayne Embry called me and said, we're taking you in the draft, and we kind of went through that process from there. Hmm. You know, I'm going to share a story with you, uh, Quinn. I, I'm not sure I've ever uh, shared this with you in all the years I've known you. I'm back home in Seattle where I grew up, and the afternoon newspaper arrives uh, the day before the draft, and it's from the Seattle Times, and the basketball writer says Sonics and Bill Russell was running the franchise at the time, the great Bill Russell. And, mm -hmm. and it said speculation is Bill Russell is quite interested in Quinn Buckner of Indiana. So I'm thinking, wow, this is great because I saw you obviously for four years and I'm thinking this is crazy. Quinn Buckner is going to be a member of the Seattle Supersonics. Uh, but I'm not sure either they drafted after Milwaukee or maybe they drafted before. I'm not sure, but you never wound up in Seattle and you go to Milwaukee. Now, who was your first coach at the NBA level? Oh, let me go back to Seattle. Seattle was 13th and they took Bobby Wilkerson. That's right. Yeah, well, that, you know, that's the reason I know it. I'm a, and I'm a huge Bill Russell fan, and, and Bill Russell and Red Arback obviously have the connection. But what people may or may not know, Coach Knight and Red Arback were really close. So Russ would have heard of me, through, you know, through through Red Arback, the later Red Arback, who he had a great, you know, great affinity for. Now, um, Milwaukee was 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 a very good experience, uh, life experience. As you noted, we'd gone through college and lost two games in my la one game in my last two years and, and then had gone through the Olympics and, and had won a, a gold medal. The, the thing that happened in Milwaukee is the first year we lost 52 games. And I had not, in my college career and high school career, I hadn't lost anywhere close to that. I don't know. I hadn't lost I maybe, let's say, 25 games in eight years. So that was a shock to the system. Um, but I wasn't, 
it wasn't what I was worried about playing. I had played with Bob Love and sometimes Chet Walker, Norm Van Lee, those guys in the summer, Flynn Robinson. So I knew I could play. We just got, again, if you, you're picking that high up, that means that you're probably not a very good team. So I got to Milwaukee with Wayne Embry and Brian Williams, Jr. Bridgman. They, that was two years after they made the trade for uh, sent Kareem to Los Angeles. And so we were expected to be bad, and we were bad. And But I learned that you really have to make sure you're prepared to play 82 games. Because I cannot tell you, Chuck, the hardest thing I've ever done athletically, and I played two years of, of college football, was to have to get through an 82-game season and be at the right level of concentration for 82 games. It's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And that's what I learned about it. Now, losing, I learned how easy it is to sink into yourself and, and get selfish. And, and I had to find my way out of that, and one of my teammates helped me with that because I'd never really lost before, uh, again, not in college and high school. So that made it a difficult transition, but one that I needed and that this just needed to know that that's where you can go. So you have to make sure that you're prepared for anything. And that's one of the great lessons I learned. Hey, was the biggest break of your pro career getting traded to Boston? Yeah, that was a, a shocker for me. That was the first time. You, get, you know, for people who have not been in no certain, no heaven, it's the first time that you have been, and you got to look at it as a highly celebrated athlete, somebody told you they didn't want you. And it bothered me so much, though. And I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I've told a lot of people this story, but I've told it before. And I called Coach Knight moaning and being immature and this, and I said, you, you know, he's asked me how I feel. And I told him how I felt, and I was disappointed, blah, blah, blah. And he, in his words, very quickly, said, get your head out of here. You know what? You got a chance to do something that few people have ever done in, in, in their lives, or few people have ever done. So <clears throat> what he had figured out was, he was already at the point of understanding that I was going to be in a position to be able to win at every level. So he was already there. And he said, besides, you're going to the most storied franchise in the history of sports. So he, he had already had the spin ready to go. But I have to admit, it was off-putting because I just had never been, I hadn't been traded before. So I, I struggled with it uh, for a while. But then one of the things I did was I, um, I, I got to know Larry a little bit, Larry Bird, and that helped me terrifically because I needed something to kind of stabilize this, for me at that time, this traumatic experience. And so that's what I had to have happened for me. Well, you won a ring with the Celtics. You won, obviously, at NCAA championship. You won at Thornridge, and you won an Olympic gold. So I'm not going to ask you to pick – the, the, the favorite, because that's like asking, you know, what child do you love, love the most? You love them all. But of, of the championships you won and the accolades that you received, was there a greater challenge of one of the four that other than the, the other three? No, winning the gold medal was possible. The, the, the the, they're all great. I mean, winning my high school championship would probably be right there. But winning, listen, representing your company, country and winning the gold medal and in in context 72 was when the the uh the gold medal effectively was taken from the u.s so being able to be part of the team that brought that back to to the states yeah that's by far the the yeah i picked that one <laughs> so it's like picking your children but it's not that's the one um because again you plan for your country there's nothing better than playing for your country 
and standing up there and they put the gold medal on you and then all of a sudden they're playing the national anthem. I'm sorry, Chuck. There's nothing better than that. And I'm not sorry. There just is nothing better than that. I understand. Quinn Buckner going to be with us for just a couple more minutes right here on our Bulls.com Time Out Bulls podcast. We really appreciate the insight. So, so Quinn, you know, there are certain people that no matter the age that you can tell that person, male, female, that person is headed for greatness. That person is a leader. That person one day in a sports world will run a franchise, be a head coach, something of that uh, ilk as far as leadership. And I knew when I saw you play at Indiana University that one day you were going to be a head coach. At what level, I wasn't sure, but I knew you were going to be a head coach. I didn't know how far your NBA career would take you, but I knew you were going to be a head coach based on the leadership and all the stories that were coming out. Remember, there's no Twitter and there's no Facebook. There's no social media. There's no texting. And so we got college basketball usually once, twice a week, and that was it in the 70s. But Quinn had an incredible reputation. So the Dallas Mavericks knock on your door, and they probably weren't the first team to ask you to coach or become involved in a franchise, but they knocked on your door. How did that evolve? And when you look back on that one year as head coach of the Mavericks, is it painful for you? How long did it take you to get through that? And what was that experience like? No, it's not painful. Um, Let me tell you, (laughs) I mentioned Wayne Embry before. Wayne Embry had an intern at the time uh, who picked me up when I went to the Milwaukee Bucks, and his name was Rick Sun. Rick Sun, at the time that I got asked to be the coach at the Dallas Mavericks, was the general manager of the Dallas Mavericks. So I had known Rick for, at that time, oh, probably about 20, uh, probably 15 years. And when he came and asked me, I was a little, I was reluctant to do it because I hadn't coached, but I, I also felt like I could do it. And so I, I, I took the job and, and, and I learned, learned a lot. I, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about the job. And I learned that there was starting to be um, a paradigm shift for all practical purposes. Uh, I, I, I found when I, when I was playing for Coach Knight and going through that era, the person in charge was, was that person, and, you, and everybody did that. And I was, a team, I was on the team, so I'd do that. What I found out in the pros was, and this is even after playing, we all did what, what Nelly, I played for Nelly in uh, Milwaukee, but excuse me, you did what the coach asked you to do. I had a couple players who were less than cooperative in that area when I was with the Dallas Mavericks, and I realized and, and got told about it, uh, though privately, pretty strongly about how they felt about doing things and not understanding why and, and those kind of things. And that was a shift for me, and my personality wasn't necessarily ready for that. So it was, that was a big part of the reason why I didn't stay after year one. Don Carter, God bless his soul, who owned uh, the Mavericks and, and then sold it to Ross Perot, who then sold it to Mark Cuban. Don Carter told me I, I, I didn't lose the job. He wanted me to hire somebody, <laughs> and he called him an old salty. So let me just tell you this story. So I'm looking for an old salty, if you will, to hire. So the guy I'm looking for is Jimmy Rogers, mm. who was of Boston fame, who was in Chicago with Phil and others. And I couldn't find Jimmy Rogers. And, and, and I'd done that the year before. Now, this is a long answer to your question, but this is 
what happened. I needed somebody that I was going to be compatible with because I knew Jimmy's personality. I, I respected his understanding and knowledge of the game, so I thought that would be a good hire. Well, I couldn't find Jimmy. Now, here's where it, it, it comes back to the Bulls. <laughs> and this is the darndest thing. I have known Jerry Krause, who I think he did a terrific job and has been underappreciated in the basketball history, period, since I was 17 years old. He tried to – the long and short of it is – he was, at that time, a scout for a, uh, a recruiter for a guy who was trying to get athletes. But anyway, so I talked to Jerry after I leave Dallas, and I said, you know, he said, what happened? I told him what happened. I was trying to run the triangle like Phil um, and was totally ignorant as to what to do with that and I accept that responsibility. I said, but I'm, I told Jerry, I said, I was looking for, for Jimmy Rogers. He said, oh, you were? Oh, Jimmy had gotten out of basketball. I sent him up to Lake Geneva and told him to stay up there. Then Jerry hires him, <laughs> so <laughs> I had to dial him, and, and you know it was just one of those things. But the experience in Dallas taught me a, a lot about humility, um, because I, I knew that I knew basketball, and I had not given enough respect for the art and craft of coaching. Um, but I could have, I, I would have made it. I, I'm sure had I done, if, if I was able to find Jimmy. But the owner was decent enough to say, "Listen, if you don't want to do this." Don't worry about, you know, the contract and those kind of things. We can figure that out. You don't have to do it. And I just called him, and I told him, I'm not sure I want to do it again. And he said, well, go home and think about it. So I went home and thought about it, um, and I just called him back. I said, I'm, I'm good where I am. Thank you very much for the opportunity. That's how I got out of it. But I did learn about humility, about trusting other people to do what they do. It wasn't that I, I, I had a young staff. I had Randy Whitman. And Randy had only been coaching one year with the Pacers and Larry Brown, so he really didn't have the experience. And, again, I, I take that as my, quite frankly, that was my basketball arrogance when I got, got carried away with it. And um, if you believe in the spirit above, which I'm a big proponent of, I got told in, in very uncertain terms, slow down. And that's the life lesson I learned from it. And I take it as a positive, but, I, you know, that's, that's what happened, Chuck, <laughs> just like that. All right. Final question, Quinn. Final question. So everyone today, if you talk to GMs or head coaches, they always say, you know what? We need a leader in the locker room or we are on draft day. This guy's going to be a leader. We can see him down the road really you know, developing into a leader on our ball club. So where are these leaders, Quinn? How do you find a leader? Is a leader self-made or do you just have it in your DNA? Can you evolve into a leader? Can you absorb some things? Where, where is the leadership coming from in this new age NBA generation where the players are getting younger and younger, even though it's a one and out, but they are young players. Where are these leaders? Not only in, in sports, you're on the board of trustees, you're looking for leaders such as yourself. Where are they today? Well, Chuck, that's, that's you know, <laughs> I know you've done many things. That's a great question. I'm telling you, it is a great question. I think um, experiences uh, help, but I think you've got to, in order to be a leader, I, I, I've seen it in, in more other people. I, I'm still subjective, so I'm not saying this about myself. I think it's part of the, your character because as a leader, the thing that you have to be able to endear uh, from people is trust. They don't trust and respect you, they're not going to follow you. So anytime you get overly concerned about yourself and what's in your own best interest versus what the team's best interest or the, the group dynamic, because I see it in business too, the group dynamic's best interest, people just don't follow you. Now, 
there's some people over some period of time that can become better at leading. Um, and, I, and I've seen that happen. I'm even, you know, you're watching a little bit of the evolution, if you will, of Camelo when you listen to him and the kinds of things that he's doing. And I think he's kind of evolving into a guy uh, with the, understanding that responsibility because that's, that's a heavy burden. Because from what I, you know, my, my sense of it is you have to be willing to do, this requires extraordinary discipline. Do what's right because it's right and not because somebody's telling you to do what's right. Guys have to look at you when you guys are goofing off or something and you say, no, I'm not doing that. Uh, I'm out. I'm not doing that. They have to almost look at you and say, oh, okay. And sometimes you get caught. They, they start saying, oh, you're too good for this. You're too good for that. It's not a matter of that. It's a matter of you've got a principle. You got things you're trying to do, and you you're true to that, and they start trusting that even when somebody else comes and tries to get you to goof off, you won't do it because you're you're really sold on the mission. But my answer to you is that's that's a hard one to answer because as you look in the league, the biggest challenge is young people are young, and we all do things when we're young that we don't do when we're older. So guys are growing into. Uh, understanding what doing the right thing all the time is and, and, and not being doing dumb things. So, so I don't have the answer to the question, but I think it's more of a, a, a evolvement, if you will, evolution for most, for all practical purposes. But as it relates to what I was able to accomplish in the athletic world and hopefully carry forward, it's a function of my family's leadership. My parents was were leaders in the community. I was expected to follow line, fell in line. I wasn't told that I was a leader, but I learned because I modeled what my parents did. And that's this environment is very different than it was 40 years ago. So that's a long answer to your question. I love it. Quinn Buckter has been our guest on Time Out Bulls, our weekly bulls.com podcast. We invite you again to join us every week right here on bulls.com for another insightful interview. Our many thanks once again to Quinn Buckner, who again won a high school championship NCAA championship, last unbeaten team in the NCAAs, won an NBA ring, won Olympic gold, was a head coach in the NBA, is an outstanding analyst on the Pacers television network, and oh, by the way, is also a member of the Board of Trustees of Indiana University. Pretty good life. We'll uh, be back next week right here on Bulls.com. This is Chuck Swirsky. Always a pleasure. Lexus is a proud partner of the Chicago Bulls. Visit your Chicago area Northwest Indiana Lexus dealer to see how sophistication can be daring in the redesigned Lexus RX. Subscribe to Time Out Bulls on iTunes and Google Play. And if you'd like what you heard, leave us a review. We'll be back next week with another great guest. Until next time, this is Chuck Swirsky. Thanks for listening to Time Out Bulls.